1: HT Smartcast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast.
0: Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi. So today I have with me Pallavi Ayer who's written this uh, very interesting book, Orienting an Indian in Japan. Hi, Pallavi. Hi, Manjula. So, uh, you know, I read the whole book, like I told you. And um, what I found really interesting about it was your perspective on things. I mean, it's clearly a very Indian person's perspective. Yes. You know, that comes out because, yes. I mean, one has always thought of uh, Japan as familiar, but strange. Yes. You know, so talk about that
1: so when it comes to the indian perspective um, that is something that i you know deliberately bring to my books because i've worked as a foreign correspondent in different parts of the world for the last 20 years and mm-hmm. i was really struck by how most of the sort of international writing out there about different parts of the world tends to be you know for western consumption by western writers and mm-hmm. the fact is that we all have our implicit lenses you know when we are looking mm-hmm. at a country and mm-hmm. we all have our We call it implicit normal, like what we are comparing, what we are observing to, what we think is the the norm that we are comparing it to. And as Mm -hmm. an Indian, that norm is completely different to, you know, from another country. And so I felt like, you know, the writings that you were getting on, I don't know, say China or even European countries or whatever, um, they were from, without necessarily being biased, there was a kind of inescapable lens through which they were written. So for me, I want to actually make my lens quite um, explicit because Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ultimately, I think that there is a value to be brought to looking at countries through a lens that is not the sort of normal Western lens, through through an Indian lens. For example, yes, but, you know, that is something that uh, is quite deliberate in a lot of my writing, and I also feel that even though it is a Indian lens, it can still be universally read. You know, just as we mm. read. Uh, universally we read things through a Western lens. I think we can universally read things through a non-Western lens as well. So while it's with an Indian lens, I don't think that the book is necessarily only for Indians. Um, Mm. Japan, as you mentioned, uh, you know, is a very interesting country in the way in which it's positioned sort of between East and West, between uh, what is familiar and what is unfamiliar. Um, You know, I think in the book, I talk about it as uh, being not Europe and not quite Asia, And I think that was because more than almost anywhere else I've been, there was this uh, quality of in betweenness. uh, Mm. Because on the one hand, it sort of blended the comfort of the first world, but it also had this anthropologically beguiling complexity that Mm. is uh, often you know what we associate with less westernized societies so like on the one hand you would have like trains running on time healthcare working michelin star restaurants abounding but there was much about the society that was simultaneously you know and unmistakably very asian Um, Mm. You know, from gestures like the namaste when you enter at a temple to everyday practices like taking one's shoes off before entering the home. Mm. Um, So it was interesting. And I felt over time that I came to believe that Japan in some ways suffers from a bit of an identity complex. Because Mm. uh, it identifies with the developed nations of Europe, but it is also cognizant that it isn't one of them. So Mm. it remains graphically in Asia, but metaphorically speaking and literally speaking, it is on the very edge of the continent of Asia. Mm-hmm. So yeah just lots
0: of food for thought. Mm. yeah and, and there were many things that you mentioned in your book that I hadn't actually thought about or you know I, I that came as a great surprise to me. The first thing that really surprised me was when you spoke about how they didn't even accept credit cards. I mean, what? That was one of the biggest surprises. You know, it is a very cash-oriented
1: society and a, not a very digitally, like that digital transition that's happened uh, across the world and, you know, particularly accelerated now, of course, by the pandemic as well. Mm-hmm. But I think Japan somehow got left behind. And that is a bit of a shocker, I think, especially given our preconceptions of the country, which we tend to associate very much with sort of techno, like a techno-utopia or, you know, techno-futurist. yeah. Uh, uh, yeah but I think that's because our impressions of Japan are very much stuck in the 1980s <laughs> at a time when Japan was very much on the edge of technological development say with the Walkman and you know all those kind of cool things mm. uh, but uh, I feel like it's still stuck in the 1980s and that cool in Japan is almost still defined by these, what in the rest of the world would be relatively um, archaic. Um, So, uh, yes, so this digital, the lack of digital payments is a glaring example. Um, You know, when you look at uh, its neighboring country, China, which uh, Mm -hmm. is a huge large country and was way behind japan say in the 1980s today everything is digital in china when it comes to payments and you know even beggars use qr codes on the road if you go to a <laughs> temple in china you make donations via qr code i mean yeah. it's just you know no one carries cash and japan so is in india for- as well. sorry sorry that happens in india as well now happening right but this whole ATM and everything this transformation but um, in in Japan uh, it's very much a cash economy you will still find restaurants that don't accept credit cards you will still find shops that don't accept credit cards and the funny thing is that you know often things are quite expensive so it's very odd that they expect you to be walking around carrying such huge quantities of uh, cash with you but of course it is also a very safe society which is something I discuss extensively Mm. um, in the But it was interesting during the pandemic, you know, I think, Panjula, that uh, this digital divide was really driven home because in the rest of Asia, uh, you know, very quickly countries were adapting to, uh, for example, working from home or long distance education or Mm -hmm. telemedicine. And Japan of all countries was really struggling with all of this. I mean, I had a lot of friends whose children were going to Japanese schools. And during the um, lockdown, um, the schools would post them handwritten, not handwritten, but like printed out um, exercises to do at home, which they had to complete by hand. And then the parents had to post these back to the school after having corrected them. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. They didn't have anything online um, until about June you know, months mm-hmm. after, say, in India and Indonesia and certainly China, all of this had begun working. Same with this telehealth, you know, you couldn't get telehealth. Uh, they don't actually allow it by law. I think now there's been a push to try to revise some of those regulations. But um, uh, initial, in the initial months, it was impossible to get any kind of teleconsultations. And part of that had to, again, do with this credit card stuff, the fact that you can't pay online. So since you have to pay. Basically, so, you know, and also I found out that something like 75% of um, hospital records were still analog and not digitized. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And then the work from home also wasn't working because, well, firstly, it turned out that there were many uh, employees who didn't even have uh, computer access at home. I mean, but what I mean, this would be not shocking if you were looking at a poor country with bad yeah. connectivity. But this is a rich country with great connectivity. And still, it turned out that a lot of employees didn't have a Wi-Fi connections at home. Uh, and, uh, you know, they also have this thing called the hanko, which is a seal. It's like a stamp, you know, you stamp mm-hmm. a piece of paper. Uh, validated and that hanko has to still I mean basically all paperwork in offices still has to be physically stamped in order for it to function so many so this work from home wasn't working because people would have to go in just to stamp paperwork you know um, so all these really archaic um, traditional systems um, which we don't associate so much with Japan you know which we sort of think of as like I say, this kind of techno nirvana uh, in fact there's a kind of schizophrenia to the country you have the neon uh, you have the shinka Consent, the bullet trains, you know, you you do have a lot of robots more than any other country. But that you've also got this deeply manual culture, uh, which remains firmly analog. Uh, so very interesting dichotomy.
0: That, that's what really threw me off. I mean,
1: I was like, you know, people don't even believe. I wrote a few articles about this uh, for Indian media when I was there. And I remember in the comment section, you know, there was like literally disbelief, <laughs> which I don't <laughs> blame them for because you know, I was also in a state of disbelief. I, I,
0: so I, about this yeah, and when I was reading it, I was thinking, even, I mean, now even credit cards are kind of passe. You know, it's all yeah, like. It's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, I, I had moved to Japan from
1: Indonesia, from yeah. Jakarta, which a much less developed country you know but mm-hmm. everything was done online and you know you had all these startups and you know apps everybody used apps even people who couldn't read and write very well yes. all had uh, apps on their phone I mean just everything, very comfortable with uh, digital technologies and so to go from there to Japan and find that things were actually harder in Japan when it came to uh, the, di- the digital transmission more
0: backward uh, that was indeed a surprise. <laughs> anyway it's got an element of time travel almost you know back no, it's the really future. 1980s, uh, cool it's like what you would have imagined in the 1980s for the future to look like. it's a bit like that <laughs> okay the other thing that really fascinated me was the ganesh bit right you know so what's very fascinating is that they have this whole
1: subterranean um, thing going on with hindu deities right because it's a buddhist Mm. country but when Mm. it became a buddhist country you know the pantheon of buddhist uh, uh, buddhist deities and all also included things that have been derived from the hindu uh, pantheon Mm. Um, and in japan what happened was that these hindu deities basically became adopted as mostly as sort of guardian deities for various temples Mm. so you know you have A whole range you have uh, Saraswati, you have Lakshmi, you have Varuna, you have Garuda, you have uh, uh, a whole range that you will find, and they are often placed as um, these guardian um, deities at the entrance to temples. And you know, they're quite unrecognizable in the sense that they've been given different names, uh, which are Japanese names, and also the facial features and all have been transformed. So, it's not something that's very physically obvious but if you start uh, digging a little bit deeper uh, uh, you find out uh, what the origins of all these various uh, deities are and then of course you have Ganesha and Ganesha is particularly interesting. I found out that in Tokyo there was a Ganesha temple that you know was possibly one of the oldest Ganesha temples that existed outside of India Hmm. and uh, I went and I paid a visit and I spent an afternoon with the head uh, priest over there. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. Well, to begin with, Ganesha in Japan is uh, called uh, Binayaka um, and is... Is a bit of an um, sort of mischievous god, you know, somebody who's quite temperamental and mm. uh, can create obstacles to your success, can also remove those obstacles uh, if uh, he so desires. And he needs to be propitiated and looked after and uh, basically fed uh, daikon, which is a kind of Japanese white radish. So it's quite hilarious. <laughs> The two loving Ganesha from India has become this moolie, moolie thing, Ganesha. (laughs) In Tokyo, in Japan. Uh, but if you kind of propitiate him with a lot of uh, these daikon, then, you know, uh, and he's happy with you, he will remove um, the obstacles in your way. So you had a lot of business people who would go there and pray to Ganesha to remove those obstacles in the path of their um, uh, commercial uh, transactions. Uh, you also had a lot of women uh, going there who could not get pregnant to kind of pray for, you know, removing whatever impediments in the path to their desired uh, pregnancy. And uh, Ganesha was a very popular But what was interesting was, is that uh, he's often presented in Japan as uh, a two-headed god, which includes both the male and the female form in sexual union. And um, uh, it's, yes, uh, which apparently existed in India at some point as well, uh, but is completely lost in India. uh, But survives. yeah. And um, and this Ganesha is uh, supposed to be so powerful and potent that you're not actually supposed to look upon the idol of this Ganesha. So um, often the idol mm-hmm. is hidden away. It's so different away. from our... Uh, it's so uh, right? It's hidden away in a crypt and only brought out once a decade or once every few decades and only a few can gaze upon um, the actual idol of the Ganesha. Um, so, yeah, it's like uh, like a lot of what you sort of see. So there's, there's the familiar, but the completely unfamiliar. <laughs> you yeah. know, I think you found familiar the Ganesha and then you start digging and it's a whole different uh, uh, kettle of uh, fish. So I think that sort of also sums up Japan, you know, like partly familiar, partly unfamiliar.
0: Yeah. And another, the other section that I found really shocking or not shocking, strange. I mean, I'm, so unexpected was the fact that they, you said that their houses were pretty messy. You know, I'm so wanting because to, it's to think please. of it as Marie Kondo, right? Yeah, I really yeah, thought I, I think Marie Kondo kind of captured the global
1: imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, now we have Japan being sold to everybody as, you know, minimalist and neat and just perfect in every way. And of course, I think that's reinforced by all these uh, retail brands like Muji and Uniqlo as well. That's yes. kind of the Japanese. I think for the international imagination. But also, I mean, think about it. They tend to have extremely small homes. You know, we're talking about maybe 40 or 50 square meter homes for families of four. And in uh, somewhere like Delhi, that would be considered really uh, pretty uh, modest. I mean, more than modest. We're talking about yes. a studio space yes.
0: for yeah. families
1: of four. Where the father or mother, where I mean, the combined income is is reasonably high. Say somebody working in um, a big sized company, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in a mid level rank. Um, mm-hmm. So you end up having such a. Space crunch that I think it's almost impossible to really have these perfect tidy houses and they tend to they don't sleep on beds they have futons and the futons are usually just put on the side of the room until the night when they are pulled out at which point the table that you'll be sitting on is put to the side all the children's notebooks and stationery and school equipment will be lying scattered around all the mothers cooking and you know all the sort of the household stuff will be all there in that same space so no wonder oh, that they're getting extremely- and it's uh, this sort of version of this very, very clean, minimalist, lightly scented uh, uh, Muji catalog uh, uh, <laughs> has been curated by Mari Kondo. I really think it's more of a marketing ploy than a reality. And in fact, there's a significant number of Japanese people who also are, uh, I've forgotten the exact name, I think it's called Gomi Sakai or something. They're basically hoarders. Gomi means rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. and You know also got a. at least if you watch Japanese television you'll find uh, a lot of reality TV based around this like you know people going into all people's houses to basically find entire uh, houses or apartments which have got buried under uh, debris or garbage that's been collected over a lifetime but people are unable to throw this out so certainly you know not that every Japanese person has a hideously messy house but I think (laughs) that the idea is a very highly uh, packaged <laughs> marketed
0: uh, ideal rather than mm. lived reality for most people mm. so basically what mary Kondo has done is that she's taken this the the jap the the japanese reality show about hoarders uh, international mm. and, and everybody's just assumed exactly. that exactly exactly mm. in some ways right and yeah. we discover how much I mean, um, I do think
1: that the sort of t- traditional Japanese aesthetic, and if you were just to look at aesthetics in Japan, they tend to be sparse yes. and austere. And mm-hmm. that's because they have a lot to do with Zen Buddhism, you know, which mm-hmm. is all about emptiness. Mm-hmm. Emptiness. So, uh, empty spaces, empty alcoves, a lot of play of just light and shadow rather than stuff. You know, it's not ornate or baroque in any way. I'd like, say, in China with the Ming and the Qing and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, so, so there is that traditional Japanese aesthetic, which can be sparse and austere and and plainer, you know, than um, uh, uh, in neighboring countries like like China. Um, it's just that the modern reality of living in very small spaces, and it is as much a consumerist society as the rest of us are, mm. uh, means that. The Marie Kondo thing is exaggerated. But yes, I find that interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but it's a very good way of thinking about it that she's taken the hoarder
0: reality <laughs> Yeah. And also this, um, you know, like you said, you bring your Indian perspective to it. And I, I this whole thing about the Burak Kamin, I, I wonder if yes. I'm uh, pronouncing that right. But the, you know, the Japanese version of the Dalit. You know, that, I mean, I heard vaguely about it, but I didn't, you know, your book kind of brought it out and, and their denial of it. So let's talk about that. Okay. So, um, Yeah, you know,
1: I think one of the questions you get asked as an Indian when you are abroad um, often is about the caste system, you know, how terrible it is, why is it there and so on. And Japan is certainly no um, exception to this, although the Japanese tend to be more sort of punishingly polite than many other societies, but they will also in a roundabout way end up asking you about caste. And I always found it interesting because in fact, Japan has traditionally been a very caste-based society. I mean, they also have like the warrior caste, the samurai, for Mm. example peasants also and you know it was very it was almost hereditary you know so mm. similar in that, of that. Mm. but I discovered all about the Burakamen only after uh, moving to Japan and I was struck so much by the parallels between the two because what was interesting about the Burakamen was firstly that they also dealt with death and polluting uh, professions This mm. mm. so this butchery and leather tanning and you mm. know uh, heights and all of that and i and i think the low status that accrued to that particular group of professions had to do with the buddhist traditions again okay. you know so it's this connection over there uh because there's this kind of reincarnation right and so um all these animals are kind of uh, considered to... the karmic exactly. thing hmm. the karmic and um, uh, and the other thing that was, uh, two other things that was strikingly similar was one, that they were confined geographically to certain areas, uh, the Buddha come in. So they lived in certain enclaves, uh, usually just outside the villages. Again, very similar to Dalits in India um, that were restricted in terms of geography and you know, mm. the areas that they could inhabit. And then the third was uh, the lack of uh, marine. Outside of their community. So, you know, it essentially reproduced itself uh, over hundreds of years. And Burakaming were officially, I mean, this whole practice of uh, recording them as separate people who had lesser rights and had to live in certain areas and all, I think was officially ended um, in the late to the mid to late 19th century. So it's been Mm -hmm. quite a long time. And they're not ethnically recognizable. or, or distinct um so you know to an extent um that sort of consciousness of the bura has disappeared however mm-hmm. it's interesting because i believe if you look at uh this uh, again if you look at butchery and all it still tends to have a disproportionate number of people from the bura community working in those professions and the other profession that you get a lot of bura in are the yakuza which is basically the the mafia and the mm-hmm. reason is that sort of um, uh, that's where kosher really wanted to join the mafia. And one of the few uh, job opportunities that <laughs> were open to the outside their traditional so-called polluting professions were the mafia, which, you know, welcomed them with open arms. So the Burakamin in disproportionately are represented in the mafia and the Yakuza, as are also Zainichi, which are Japanese of Korean extract, who are also a discriminated against group. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so they sort of gravitated uh, into crime and, you know, running uh, gambling dens and, um, oh. and uh, real and things like that. So you've got a lot of coming over there uh, till today. And I think until quite recently, they've done surveys, like i am talking about five or six years ago, they've done surveys uh, asking people about whether they would be okay with their children marrying uh, people of Buraku ancestry. And, uh, you know, you've got uh, up to 40% of people saying absolutely not. Um, so there is certainly more than just a glimmer of a remnant of a consciousness of, uh, of caste uh, in japan as well although uh when you tend to ask japanese people straight out they they act very like what what is the buddha I, i've had people saying that they don't even know what i'm talking about like who are the buddha? what, I, what I mean how 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 <laughs> can, can that be do it. but because you see it's not then public discourse at all There's no reservations. They're not supposed to technically have existed for more than 100 years. So there's no sort of reservations for them. There's no articles about them in the newspaper. There's no education about them in schools. So for a lot of people, it's a complete... But that's denial. So you mean they're in denial. Yeah, there's denial? There's denial at multiple levels about many things in Japan, including racism in general, but also about the homogeneity of their own country. Because actually they have a lot of homogene- uh, heterogeneity, as in they have minority groups, although the dominant uh, discourse in Japan is that they are a very homogeneous egalitarian society. Whereas in fact, there's a lot of inequality, and they have minority groups that have historically been discriminated against, and also in more contemporary times, uh, ethnic Chinese, ethnic uh, Koreans, um, the the Burakameen, also the Ainu, which are indigenous people Mm. from northern, from Hokkaido, which are uh, sort of more closer to Mongolians ethnically, um, or Eskimos actually, Um, and. Um, so, yeah, you do have quite a lot of heterogeneity within Japan. But the mainstream political discourse is that this is a very homogenous society, the Japanese, which can be very uh, uh, detrimental to the minority since they're not really recognized uh, as groups deserving of uh, you know special upliftment or, yes. or policies that would be directed towards actually helping um, these communities which have historically been
0: uh, on the periphery. Hmm. Gosh, it, it's a very curious way of uh, discrimination. I mean, it's not overt, but it still it's is how It's not hard. overt, but it's there. yeah. there's a subterranean sort of
1: discrimination that exists. And this is discrimination for groups within Japanese society who are, who are obviously absorbed into Japanese society. And then there's also different forms of racism for people who are more obviously foreign. Um, So, yeah, there's certainly um, undercurrents and more overt currents also of xenophobia.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yes, when you spoke about those, uh, you know, 70-year-olds rushing around saying things, you know, The the nationalists, talk about that. So they're a minority of
1: people, but they are exceptionally loud. And they're exceptionally loud in a country that is exceptionally quiet. (laughs) So they really sort of stick out, you know. I mean, the Japanese as a whole tend to be very sort of soft-spoken and very uh, aware of their surroundings and not to disturb other people. So it's generally a very polite and quiet uh, society. But then you've got these absolutely crazy people who are essentially far-right nationalists. They tend to be... Mm -hmm older demographic, you know, it's often octogenarians, septogenarians, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> which they've repurposed into like these crazy looking vehicles. It's almost like Mad Max. Have you seen that movie? Mad yeah. Max <laughs> People like that like really mad and they've got these imperialist flags that are flying from the jeeps and they blast military music and then they scream invective basically against usually the Chinese and the Koreans and they get permission to do this every Sunday. So, you know, your lovely tranquil Sunday is suddenly interrupted by these convoys of crazy old men, it's always men, you know, screaming. And I lived in the embassy area. So I had the Korean embassy right next to me and the Chinese embassy reasonably close as well. So I was particularly like in the thick of, uh, uh, you know, all these protests every Sunday. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because they say some pretty nasty things. I mean, you know, bordering on hate crime. And in fact, I think there'd been a survey that was done in 2017, 2018 that discovered a lot of instances of hate speech through these groups where they were actually calling upon, you know, say, for example, the Koreans to be crushed, to, to be crushed like cockroaches. And, and and things like that, and but not all of it is as nasty. Sometimes it's more specific and political about, say, you know, the Senkaku Islands or some dispute they're having with China, or the mm. Comfort Woman with Korea. Um, it's it's like, it's, it's, it is ugly. And what I find interesting is that the majority of Japanese people who certainly would not participate in any activities like these or whatever, but they don't really seem to react violently against it either. And when they would see these people on the streets, it's almost as though they would uh, act as though nothing was happening, you know, just go completely uh, deaf and blind to their activities. Um, and I found that interesting because, you know, Japan as a society tends to be very Intolerant of noise or craziness or idiosyncrasy. I mean, if you just see a crazy person on the streets, you know, everybody would be kind of looking at that person censoriously. But when you have the Oyoku it's just like they get this glazed eye as though they're just not seeing it. They're deliberately unseeing what's
0: happening in front of them. It's well, really it sort of, uh, when, yeah. when I was reading that section, I was thinking that maybe it's like, you know, your crazy granddad. What can you do? You know, you just have to ignore him. I it's not. I I suppose
1: so you have to just ignore it. I mean, um, the, it's more insidious as well because uh, the former Prime Minister, I mean, the party that's in power, the LDP and the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and all, while they were not Uyoku they had sympathies leaning on that mm. side. Um, mm. Basically, you know, the idea is that Japan's militaristic past was not that bad. And that, mm. uh, you know, of exaggerated how bad it was and and, and that uh, you know they've done enough of a, you know with all this apology and all of that and now it's time to kind of stick up for themselves and rearm and you know become a more normalized nation because post second world war because of the americans and all of that they essentially ended up being a pacifist nation their constitution has pacifism written into it and they're not allowed mm-hmm. by law to have their own defense forces mm-hmm. um, uh, but what uh, Shinzo Abe wanted what the LDP wants is to kind of issue all of that and get back into a more mainstream uh uh country that can defend its own national. So you know it's kind of also caught up with that because the while they're the extreme fringe of the right, um mm. they the the, the 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 right is sort of tacitly approving of them you know of okay. uh, bringing mainstream conversation more towards the right to sort of helping to tilt the uh, the middle as it were more towards the right so um, I mean so there's definitely elements of uh, of that so I'm not sure it's as harmless as your crazy old granddad you know okay. what you
0: do. Hmm. Hmm. no the crazy old da- granddad isn't harmless because he's kind of <laughs> <extreme>. <laughs> you know <laughs> Well. Okay, another thing, I I found this toilet section hilarious about yeah. them having a toilet god. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> <The toilet. laughs> I mean, even during hilarious. Well, hilarious. China, what,
1: if there was a country that had a toilet, God, it had to be Japan, right? Because everybody comes back from Japan thinking, talking about the toilets. I mean, it's the first thing that you notice, and probably the last thing that you uh, end up talking about when you return back home because they are so striking. And if you are looking at Japan's tech image, I think a lot yeah. of this tech image comes from how you know avant-garde <laughs> toilets. Yeah, to be- you rally right. <laughs> The logical energies into their toilets rather than their digital payments. <laughs> um, although I believe toilets can probably probably accept payments soon, you know, yeah, because they can already do all kinds of other things. Uh, there are toilets that can measure your blood sugar levels, and you know. Uh, through your urine and uh, also like when you sit down on them they can tell you your heart rate and things like that they can actually monitor your vital statistics and even the most ordinary toilets have this wonderful heated toilet seat which is such an amazing invention that after four years of living in Japan I don't know how I lived without it uh, and how I'm now really loved it but it's really, when you go into a normal, average Japanese toilet, it looks a bit like an airplane cockpit, you know, like given oh. all those buttons, flashing mm-hmm. lights. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be quite intimidating for people who who uh, can't read because it's all written in Japanese. So when you press the buttons as a foreigner, you're pretty much doing it blind. And you have no idea if you pressed flush or if you, uh, you know, call the, uh, the emergency team to come and guess <laughs> From some, you know, uh, uh, robbery or something, or there's an apocryphal story that somebody once uh, pressed a button because they wanted to flash and ended up buying tickets for a six-hour kabuki show instead. <laughs> 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 uh, but, but it's quite, uh, quite something to see a Japanese toilet. You know, they have all these different kinds of music that you can choose from, and then your toilet seat can pulsate or not, and also what? kind of pulsate. Pulsate. You know, like the, for example, the heated. Uh, toilet seat it can either go in like waves and heat you or all at once or um, then what else do they have lights they have a lot of ambiance kind of things and then you have various functions for cleaning your rear and also your anterior let me just (laughs) leave it (laughs) at that (laughs) when you see that of stuff starts squirting out and you don't know where it's gonna hit you (laughs) back front side or where um, but no, they're great. Um, and yes, as you said, toilet god as well. I mean, toilets have had a special place in uh, Japanese folklore. So that's a Shinto deity, not a Buddhist deity, but there's a, okay. there's a toilet god uh, that's a but, Shinto but, deity. But there's a lot of like all the haikus and all that have been written by people that have been focused on toilets and one of their greatest writers tanazaki who wrote a treatise on japanese architecture also had a long section of the japanese loo as being like the center of the house the most important part of the house where the greatest ideas came to people and I'm talking, you know we're talking about a while ago more than 150 years ago when these toilets were not like these fancy toto toilets
0: um. So, um, yeah, uh, toilets in Japan, I think, are another inescapable pairing. Yeah, this. it's fascinating. I mean, I you know, like an as an Indian, you mention it as well. Like you know, we have such a revulsion to it, uh, to to anything to do with you know the, with the toilet that that which is a problem for us, and it emerges from the caste system as you've like very rightly pointed out. So this comes as a complete, I mean, you're gobsmacked. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> when I was reading it, I just put it down and said, what is this? And we treated our toilet as the most important uh,
1: room in our house. I and mean, there's a lot of problems would be solved, you know, I mean, from health to hygiene to social issues and hierarchies. And uh, I, I think toilets are really key to the transformation of society and when whichever yes. country i have in Looked at how the toilets operate and the culture around those toilets as well. Yes. And uh, yeah, like China is also very developed in that sense, you know, because uh, they had a cultural revolution. And um, during the cultural revolution, model workers were venerated. And one of the model workers who was venerated was uh, Shishua Sh- Chang, I think his name was, who was basically a toilet cleaner. And all mm-hmm. the school children. 40 years learned his story and they were told to learn from him because he cleaned toilets but he cleaned toilets with all enthusiasm and did a great job of it and everybody had to clean their own toilets and I think that just changes something in your head you know, when it comes to dignity of labor and these kind of social hierarchies Um, and uh, yeah uh, it's certainly in Japan while they might have the bura kamen
0: and all of that uh, it's uh, it's very different to the Indian caste system which is yes, um, uh, well, yes I think only Gandhi was the one who really, I mean, which is why he spoke about, you know, he cleaned toilets himself and the whole ashram had to clean I toilets. I when I was
1: in China, I used to always say that if you were looking at that aspect of Gandhi, that China was more Gandhian than India. Uh, yes,
0: uh, <laughs> that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, but talking about China, you know, you've, you've, you've managed to like... Uh, like there's been a there's been a whole spate of books on China and, you know, the India thing and all that. But you've managed to compare China and, uh, and Japan and, you know, for an Indian reader, it's very enlightening. I mean, the Chinese seem more, uh, you know, it seems easier to understand them once I think they're the to India they're more they're closer
1: to our culture and uh, the Jap- Japanese are certainly more unique and yeah mm. you know I really tried to triangulate the three because China mm. um, yeah and Japan I guess are the three places I'm most familiar with and mm. since I was you know, saying that I kind of try to make my lens explicit. Be having lived in China, that's also part of the lens that I look at things with. So when I'm comparing a country or looking at a country, I not only automatically compare it to India, but to some extent to China as well, because that's become one of the lenses through uh, which I look at the world at. And yeah, it was interesting, especially because I think for a lot of the world, you know, China, Japan it's like East Asia. It's like one thing, yeah. but in fact, uh, so very different. And uh, I mean, there's many ways in which you can express that difference. One is that I always say that the, you know, the Chinese are aggressive and the uh, the, the Japanese are passive aggressive. <laughs> and, uh, um, but it's also interesting because I think the place that you're in very much determines what you write about it. And, you know, when I lived in China, the very first stories that I wrote um, were about the 2003 SARS epidemic and the government mm. cover-up. Cover up, and I think what was interesting is that there were essentially political stories. Everything I wrote about China was essentially political. And mm. in Japan, my very first story uh, for an Indian newspaper was on kintsugi, which is this arcane form mm. of ceramic, you know, where cracks in pieces yes. of porcelain with gold mm-hmm. and uh, so I think that's also one way of sort of understanding the difference between the two because I think that just you know what politics is to Japan to China aesthetics is to Japan and mm-hmm. um, I really think that understanding aesthetics is very important to understanding Japan and I think you find that aesthetic vein from haikus to flowers to craftsmanship and kintsugi literally snaking through every chapter of this book. Yes. Um, and One person who helped me to understand the two also um, in comparison is an American Japanologist called Alex Kerr. And quite Mm -hmm. uncommonly, he's also a Sinologist. He had first uh, studied China and then Mm -hmm. he had later on Japan and he's written a lot comparing the two countries and I think he posits that lovers of China are thinkers and they are adventurous with critical minds, you know, always talking about politics like, you know, what happened at Tian- Tiananmen in 1989 for example or, uh, you know, if you go to a Chinese studies class in a university abroad, it could be all about the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, this, that and the other but that lovers of um, Japan, you know, on the other hand tend to be sensuous and intuitive and it's true, like if you were to go into a uh, japanology class abroad somewhere they were far more likely to be talking about zen buddhism and the swish of a monk's robe or something like oh, yeah. that yeah. Uh, you know, political uh, tumult uh. so it's interesting the kind of political aesthetic vein and i think india in some ways is the third which is metaphysical you know the, mm. with the religious side mm. so i do think of the as a kind of
0: triangular you know aesthetics politics metaphysics
1: mm.
0: okay Hmm. And I also found it interesting this bit when you said, uh, you know, they're very low on, uh, uh, they're high on, I mean, I don't know, i marked it. They're high on ritual but low on theology. Something like yes, that. Yes, yes. Yeah, so talk about
1: so, that. It, it's it, fascinating. It just, most of them are atheists. I mean, like when you when you do Japanese surveys and all of that and, you know, what religion are you, are you atheist or are you atheist, people will say they are atheist. So, you know, okay. eight, upwards of a Center of Japanese will uh, say they are atheists, but they participate in all rituals and they go a lot to. Uh, uh, uh. So, Japanese center have Buddhism and Shintoism, right? Hmm. The, the uh, religious spaces associated with Buddhism are called temples, and those hmm. associated with Shintoism are called shrines, yeah. and uh, and they are associated with different parts of your life. So, Shintoism and the shrines are usually to do with birth, oh. um, and so when is born the family will go to the shrine and get the blessings of the priest but when you die all the funerary rituals are associated with buddhism and mm. the temple mm. um, but you know often they also get married even though they're not at all christian but they like this whole western christian wedding like the white dress <laughs> and whatever. have all these fake churches uh, which are basically like because restaurants they look like churches for <laughs> any religious content, but they give you the fantasy of getting married in a church. And Ooh. so you know, the Japanese are probably the only people who kind of they get they are born to Shintoism, they get married to Christianity, they die to Buddhism, and they are atheists. <laughs> fascinating. actually love it because i think rituals are very important and you know as a society they still uh, preserve and observe those rituals so unlike say in china where you had the cultural revolution which was all about smashing all of these rituals so you had a lot of society that was stripped of its cultural traditions and uh, Mm. uh, memory Uh, japan actually preserves a lot of that memory and those rituals but you know it is it has emptied it out of some of the are more othering aspects of religion and that kind of heated uh, uh, and hatred filled <laughs> aspects that religion can also have uh, yeah. so I think the way that religion operates there's more as a sort of community thing they have a lot of these um, processions and they they mark the seasons through that and a lot of Fiestas and festivals um, that will have, uh, you know, some amount of uh, religious imagery in them, um, but uh, it, it's not like the, the identity politics is not
0: focused on religion at all. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that and, you know, this thing was when you say modern Japan was what China might have been if Mao Zedong had not existed. This, yes. This is very, uh, you know, this is what comes out, I guess. You think? Well, uh, no, because, you know, I mean, basically, Japan is heavily indebted to China culturally. Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, a lot of its traditions, a lot of its uh, aesthetics, its culture, its language itself, mm-hmm. um, you know, comes from China. Uh, but it uh, has a much, uh, uh, it has uh, an unbroken line, you know, sort of stretching to the past. Whereas China had this violent rupture. Yes. Uh, At so, uh, that kind of. Uh, try to dismiss and throw out all the elements of its past. And so while it's now building them anew in a sort of selective way, it's a bit of a pastiche, whereas mm-hmm. Japan has actually preserved them in many ways in a more organically, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I mean uh, even in terms of the landscape uh, because China has ended up having much more environmental degradation and things like that but when you go into the Japanese countryside and you know you see the bamboo and you see the bo- blossoms and you have one of these traditional temples on top of a misty mountain all those Chinese aesthetics of those you know ink wash paintings or something like what you see out of Kung, Kung Fu Panda <laughs> or whatever <laughs> you know that's actually in Japan you'll find that in Japan uh, but it's mm-hmm. much harder to in China, which was essentially, you know, uh, built
0: anew uh, by the
1: communists.
0: Hmm. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned about thinking, you know, I have a lot of Indians of a certain class have this idea that Japanese women are like really uh, suppressed and they kind of like, you know, they're submissive and and all that. And and, and, I mean, not that Indian men are very... uh, (laughs) non-chauvinist but you know this idea that uh, Japanese women are, are in a bad bad place so yeah mm. and, and you brought out this uh, that it isn't really so so talk about that so again you know I think uh, it depends a bit on your lens now if you are comparing a lot
1: of Japanese women to say women in Spain which is where I am right now or mm. if you are comparing a lot of Japanese women to Indians. So it irks me particularly in the Indian context, you know, where, uh, uh, you know, I mean, there's just on every parameter women are so far behind. And for, you know, Indians to kind of say, oh, it's terrible in Japan how they treat their women, I get a bit annoyed. I mean, to begin (laughs) with, more than 70% of Japanese women are in the labor force, yeah, which is extremely high. It is higher than the world average. And in India, it's like dipped under 30% right so you yes, can see yes, that it's dipping hmm. it's dipping going lower yes. and lower right? yes. now the problem does not mean that japan is like a, a perfectly equal society and that it is not a patriarchal society it is certainly a patriarchal society but women have far greater freedoms there than they would have in india to work and to live their own lives on their own terms now that said of uh, Going back to the labor force issue, while you might have 70 percent of women in the labor force, uh, you have them at sort of menial to middle level jobs. The glass ceiling is very much there and Mm -hmm. it's extremely high to rise above a certain level. Um, And, you know, I think at some level that has to do with the work culture as a whole. Hmm. Japanese work culture is just punishing and Hmm. it does not have any concept of work-life balance and it is based on the idea that whoever is working the salary man or woman uh, will be 100% dedicated to their job and does not have space for any other thing in their life. So Hmm. you know if you are going to have a family then it does end up having this kind of gender segregation where one part of uh, the couple has to essentially be at home. It is impossible almost within the Japanese working culture as it exists right now for people to look after their children and also be holding down full-time jobs. Uh, This can also be very punishing for men uh, who don't care. To uh, do anything other than work, and you know, often end up having lives of quiet desperation as a result. I often think I'd rather be a Japanese woman because at least they have you know some more free time, and um, they can spend time with their children, and they go out for lunch, and they're out seeing the sky and being in parks or whatever. Whereas men are basically you know making long commutes, going to an office, staying there the whole day, and then sometimes they have to go out with their bosses in the evening and get drunk until they throw up, and then repeat and repeat and repeat. Not very nice. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now so, so you know, I mean, it's it's certainly uh, it's a society with problems, and I think one of the biggest problems is just this work culture, which somehow needs to change. And they're aware of it, but they have been struggling to try to change it. They've been trying to experiment with shorter work hours. They've been trying to, for example, institute a Friday where people would you know leave after only work half days. But it's been very unsuccessful because it's so ingrained in how things are done that people it's not easy to change them overnight. And there's a sort of psychological barrier to change uh, that people have internalized culture right uh, but we have had a couple of cases of extreme and really upsetting um misogyny um uh, which you know do show that japan has a very long way to go um and i'll talk you through them quickly one is to do with um you know sumo wrestling right when mm-hmm. large other. now sumo wrestling is uh, actually a shinto sport it's associated with the shinto religion and when the sumo wrestlers are wrestling each other they are supposed to channel the kami or the shinto spirits through them so there's mm-hmm. this kind of religious, religious aspect associated with it and i'm telling you this because enter women women because they menstruate are considered in uh impure as in hinduism and in it's buddhism so familiar and, <laughs> Yes, very familiar. And therefore, the women have not been allowed, they cannot be sumo wrestlers themselves, and they are also not allowed into that area for the doyo where they actually wrestle with each other because mm-hmm. they would then drive away the spirits or whatever they, because of their impurities that they would bring. Now, this is still the case, and uh, it was really brought to light about, uh, I think it was two, three years ago, 2017, 2018, where there was a Shinto tournament on, and when the at the end of it, when the mayor of that city went onto the he went into the ring to present. Uh, the winning wrestler with their prize, he suffered a heart attack and he fell down on the stage. And there were two, um, med- not medics, I think they were nurses, trained nurses mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the uh, audience. And they immediately rushed um, onto the, into the ring to help the mayor. And, uh, you know, instead of assisting them to assist the mayor, the referee was like, women are not allowed here, get out, get out, <laughs> through the women. Oh out <laughs> the mayor oh was essentially he didn't die but I mean that caused a huge furor and, uh, and then finally the Sumo Association has now clarified that in life threatening situations women may enter the ring wow. Um the concession that was made uh, post that particular incident. But until 2018, um, you know, even in life-threatening situations, they would rather the person die than a woman enter the sumo ring. And uh, another case that came to light which was also really upsetting was uh, that the top medical colleges it transpired mm. had for the- marking women down uh, in the entrance exams and had been inflating the grades of men because they wanted to keep a proportion of something like 80% men and 20% women, despite the fact that if you actually looked at how they did, there would be far more women than men. And the explanation that they gave for this was that once women uh, got married, they could no longer be doctors. So if they had 80% of women going to school, uh, med school, and then leaving the profession, there'd be a great shortage of doctors in the country, which is why That's they so had hard. to ensure. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Can yes. you imagine? Shocking, shocking, you know, and it turned out to be quite a widespread practice. Uh, like there wasn't just the one medical school, um, but that medical schools across the country were doing this. So you can see that there is, uh, you know, uh, entrenched patriarchy and all of that. But in terms of safety of women, in terms of them leading, you know, uh, safety from violence, safety from, and just, yeah, you know, being able to occupy public space without mm-hmm. worry for themselves. Mm. Um there's no comparison, say, with India, which is mm. why it sort of irritates me, you know, when you have Indians kind of saying "tut tut poor Japanese women. Uh, oh so God. they certainly sort of have their share of problems, uh, and uh, you know, there is uh, uh there is misogyny, certainly. Mm. Um but um yeah I don't think
0: Indians are in any place to be really judging. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. And and from your from the book you know I really thought like you said I thought the women had it better than the men. I mean the men really? should be having a really of quality of life. In terms of quality of life uh, certainly
1: women have it better than the men. Hmm. okay. They also tend okay. to uh, control the finances of the house. So it's uh, quite common for the husband to give all the money to the wife and then for the wife to give pocket money to the husband. This is super. Uh, (laughs) Certain amount for their lunch. If they've been good, they get more for their lunch. If they've been very good, they might get a a glass of beer thrown in or whatever. But but I mean, there is financial empowerment despite the fact that they might not be earning the money. They do make budgetary
0: decisions. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. So I think, uh, I mean, I can keep talking to you. And, you know, it's like um, I found the book fascinating and very enlightening and kind of made me want to go to Japan. So I'm so glad that is the whole idea. (laughs) So uh, so for the for the listeners, everybody go out and get Orienting an Indian in Japan by uh, by Pallavi Ayer. It's um, it's a great read. And, uh, you know, like I said, it makes you want to actually go there. So, thank you so much, Pallavi, for coming on to the show. Thank you, Majlaya. Thank you for inviting me. And it was a real pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye.
1: This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast.